G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. What would a life look like that lives for the next world and not this one? What would it look like? What would I expect to see? Hi, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Don't touch my stuff. Sounds like a cranky youngster, right? Well, actually, it can be just how we think as grown-up Christians when we hold on to the things we want to keep, and not just our money. Today, we'll hear My Stuff is My Stuff as part of the Christian Atheism series. It says when it comes to your stuff, there's one of two ways you can approach it. And you've heard of the the tale of two cities. This is a tale of two stories, both in Luke. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Good morning, everybody. Turn over, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, and while you're doing that, one of my favorite songs was done by Mike and the Mechanics. And I like that because, well, it just reminds us, and I just want to remind you, even though the message today brings in the idea and the concept of fatherhood, it's not ultimately what the message is about. But I don't want to start, don't want to begin by reminding you, without reminding you, that say it loud and say it clear, that if you have an issue with your dad, I just want to remind you to forgive. Forgive. Now, some of you are going to say, hey, you have no idea what my dad put me through. Here's what I do know. That until you forgive your father for whatever he did, or whatever you think he's done, you'll never be able to move forward with your own life. And it will haunt you for the rest of your life. I know that no dads are perfect. A lot of you had great dads, but in some way they let you down. Well, I want to tell you again, maybe he would have been a perfect dad if you'd have been a perfect child. So whatever issue you need to forgive, get it done. I talked to my dad this last week, and my dad made an interesting statement to me. And I think for the first time in my dad's life that he, uh, he recognizes that the quality of his life is not going to improve at this point. He has emphysema. Uh, it's in severe stages. And I heard a little bit of resignation in my dad's voice for the first time, and here's what he said to me over the phone. He said, son, better not live for this world, better live for the next one. Now, he's talking about what the Old Testament says about our lives are so short, like the grass and the wind, here today, gone tomorrow. But I started thinking about that in relation to the series that we're in. What would a life look like that lives for the next world and not this one? What would it look like? What would I expect to see? Because we're in a series we've entitled Christian Atheism. And what we're saying is there are plenty of people who say, I believe in God and I follow Jesus, his son, whose lives look nothing like the God of the Bible or the things his son taught. So we're in a pretty serious series right now where we're taking a hard, fast look at who we say we are and asking the question, does it harmonize well with the way we live? So I want to move from the 40,000 foot level that we approached last week and come down to a more, or hone in on a, a more specific area. And it happens to be the area in which Jesus talks most about. And if I was going to title the message, it would be this. I believe in God and follow Jesus, but 
My stuff is my stuff. Now, let me just put you at ease. At nowhere in this sermon will you hear the word tithe, so you're okay. So I want you to give Pastor Jeff the benefit of the doubt that maybe he's going to say something today that would really revolutionize the way I see the world and my life, and I could be potentially changed. So when everybody say together, on the count of three, I want us all to say, Pastor Jeff, we're listening, okay? All right, on the count of three, one, two, three. Pastor Jeff, we're listening. Good, because here's what the Bible says. It says when it comes to your stuff, there's one of two ways you can approach it. And you've heard of the the tale of two cities. This is a tale of two stories, both in Luke. And I'm not going to be able to read the story. I found out last night that would take me about 50 minutes. And so I know you won't be here that long. Don't want to be here that long. So I'm going to summarize it. And we're going to deal primarily with the second story. But the first story that deals with this whole concept is found in Luke 16, where we hear the story about a rich man and Lazarus. Now I'm going to ask you not to turn there because I'm going to have to do this hurriedly, rapid fire, so that I can get... So you know what's there. I'll summarize it for you. It's a story of a rich man who's very wealthy. The Bible says he fared sumptuously every day. He had one goal in mind, get all I can and get it now. And there's a poor man who's so poor that he has to have his friends come pick him up and lay him at the rich man's gate so that he might beg for food every day. Now, here's what's bothering me about that parable since my early days of reading it and trying to understand. According to the parable, I'm thinking, why does the rich man automatically go to torment and the poor man automatically go to heaven? I mean, I thought salvation was by grace. And we're not told anything in the parable the rich man does or the poor man. We're not told the poor man's a great man. It appears to me that the rich man goes to torment And the poor man goes to heaven and it never tells us why. So the million dollar question for me has always been concerning that parable. Why does the rich man go to a place of torment? Is it just because he's rich? So do you go to torment if you're wealthy? Well, somebody might say, well, Jeff, the Bible does say in Matthew 19, verse 24, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. People like to remind me of that, but I like to remind them of the rest of that verse that says, but with God, all things are possible. But again, why does a guy who's rich automatically go to torment and we're not told why? But more importantly, before I get to that, another question occurs. Who's rich? How do you define rich? Because I want to know. If you're rich, you automatically go to torment. Wouldn't you? Now, I remember when I was a little boy, we'd play this game out in our lawn with my brothers. I'd take a baseball and I had this uncanny ability to throw a baseball a mile, no, not literally, you know, that's pastor language, a mile up in the air. Okay, I couldn't throw it very straight, but I could throw it high. And so I'd say to my brother, Tony, all right, Tony, I'm going to throw this ball. If you catch this ball, it means that when you grow up, you're going to be a millionaire, right? And he was nervous. Oh man, my whole future lies on this fly ball. Or if you're on a free throw line and you're playing a game of 21 out in the backyard and you're at 20, and I'd say to my brother, hey, if you make this, not only are you going to beat me, but that means that you're going to be a millionaire when you grow up. Or to my brother, hey, I'm going to throw this fastball, and if you hit this fastball, it means you're going to be a millionaire when you grow up. Can you see the little Monopoly guy with all the money? Remember that? The mil- Why did we say that? Because when I was growing up, here's what we thought. If you're a millionaire, you've arrived. You're at the top rung of the ladder. Your life is now whole and complete, Right? A millionaire. Fidelity recently did a survey in which they asked a thousand millionaires, a thousand of them, whose average financial worth is somewhere around 3.5 to 4 million. They asked them all the same question. It was this, are you rich? Do you know what they said? No, we're not rich. 
well, what would it take to be rich? And they said around $7.5 million. Double what they had over. Now, would you like to guess in the survey who believed that if you had 7.5 million that you were not rich? Those who had 7.5 million. Because we compare ourselves financially similar to how we compare ourselves morally. When somebody asks you if you're thinking about how good you are, a good moral person, you're not going to compare yourself with Mother Teresa, are you? You're going to compare yourself with Charles Manson or a serial killer. And you're going to think, man, I'm a pretty good person. Financially, you don't compare yourself with the one billion people in the world who live on a dollar a day or people in Africa or people in India. You compare yourself with who? People like Bill Gates or with the Joneses next door. So my question is, who's classified as rich? Because the Bible has a lot to say to those people. Because according to the Bible world, here's how they would describe rich people. They would say rich people have food issues. That while 800 million people will not eat today, 300 million people of those being children, and I know this is going to be hard for some of you to believe, but rich people, the way the Bible would define them, they would actually and I've seen this happen before. They would actually throw old food away to make room for the new food in their refrigerators, in their houses. That's what rich people do. As a matter of fact, rich people, they go to a food warehouse. I mean, a big market. And they not only get to choose food, but they can choose from different brands of the same food. Which brings a lot of stress into young mothers' lives. Because will they be able to keep peace and harmony in the family if they bring home a particular brand that the teenage child does not like? Will the son or the daughter slam the door and say, I told you white bread, not wheat? So it's very taxing and draining on moms, which explains why people who are rich engage in another activity. I mean, for most of the world, two-thirds of the rest of the world, I mean, even 90%, this is unfathomable, that two or three nights a week, they will go out and somebody else will prepare the meal for them. So that each member in the family can have exactly the type of food they want. Now, while the rest of the world is quite happy to have the same type thing every day, three meals a day, bread, some type of mill or milly mill or corn mush and water. But these people know if there's all kinds of food in the house, but they still don't want what's there, they actually go out somewhere else and each person can order precisely what they want because that's what you can do when you're rich, which brings another challenge. Rich people and their families will have a family tussle over where to eat out. So their concern is far greater than just having food and water. They got to worry about which restaurant to go to so that everyone will be happy. And that can be difficult on a family. So much stress and arguments and disagreements. And I've known in these families, these rich family situations where the teenagers will just refuse to go because they're not happy where they're going. And they'll stay home and they'll say, well, I'm just going to stay home and eat a peanut butter sandwich. Now, to, to 90% of the world, a peanut butter sandwich would be a luxury. But they think they're really stressing it out. This is really hardcore because I have to have a peanut butter sandwich. I may even add some jelly. <laughs> In fact, rich people, I'll tell you, they have so much money that they will actually pay a dollar what one billion people in the world live on a day to have their water, not out of the tap, but to have somebody put it in a bottle for them. Even though they hear all the surveys that say that it's no more healthier in the bottle than it is out of the tap, they will still pay that dollar, sometimes two. And because all this wealth brings so much stress into rich people's lives, they will even pay two, three, four dollars to add a little boost called caffeine to their water 
to help them deal with all the stress in their lives that money is bringing. And, I, and I've only heard this, this is just on the street. I've never seen this at my home, but I've heard that rich families, whoever they are, that their wives will stand in a closet with clothes for Africa. And, and this never happened at my home, but I've heard it happens. And, and the wife will say, I have absolutely nothing to wear. It is an amazing thing. And while they're doing that, their husband, he, he's down in the garage. Now you think about this. That's right, a garage. While hundreds of millions of people would give anything for a house with a roof over their heads. Rich people, they have little houses for their cars and they're called garages. And a great majority of people in the world have no house. If they do, there's no heat or air conditioning in them. And if they have a small house, cardboard, wood, and many, many families live in the house, but not rich people. They even have little houses and they're nice, nice little houses for their cars. And while 92% of the world depends on walking or bicycling or anything with wheels just to be able to get around, rich people, they own a car. And sometimes more than one. And teenagers in rich people's family expect their parents to buy them a car. Or somehow they're abused. And to pay the insurance cost as well. Everything. And to pay for the gas too. While most people, 92% of the world walks or rides a bike but not rich people. Rich people have cars, sometimes more than one. And here's what's really interesting about wealthy people. Sometimes they'll walk down in the garage and they'll look at this car and it may be a couple years old, may have a little dent in the fender, may have a scratch or two, and they'll just decide, you know what, I'm gonna get a new car. Now it runs perfectly fine and they could live with this car, but they, that's what you do when you're rich. I just want another car. And they'll go out and just buy themselves another car. And the car they trade in would be a luxury that most people would die for. At least 92% of the rest of the world. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, I never have like sarcasm. <laughs> and uh, rich is a really a relative term. And I always say, yeah, but it's never my relative. But the Bible, <laughs> the Bible indirectly defines rich for us. Thanks for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. The message is called My Stuff is My Stuff as we continue in the Christian Atheism series. Here's Pastor Jeff with more. Jesus, when telling his disciples to pray, said, here's how I want you to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, why does he pray this? Because in the New Testament times, you know who the rich people were? Rich people were the people who had more than enough, more than what they needed to make it through one day. If you have more than you need to make it from one day to the next, congratulations, you're rich. You've arrived. You're at the top rung of the ladder. You're doing well. You're doing better than 92% of the people in the world. What's your point? My point is this. Jesus had you and me in mind when he uses the word rich. Now I really want to know why the rich man in Luke 16 automatically went to torment. Is it simply because he's rich? Well, that's absurd, isn't it? Especially when you consider 1 Timothy 6, 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. So that shows me that there's a possibility of being rich and godly. It's not how much money you have, but it's what you do with the money you've been given that makes you right and acceptable in the eyes of God. Now, here's what... This took, and I, I did this last night, it took me like 25 minutes, but I, I got to do it like one or two for you because of time. 
Here's the whole point of Luke 16. Jesus tells the parable in the context that the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious folk thought that if you're wealthy, it meant that you were spiritually mature. And Jesus tells a parable to show you how ridiculous that is. It's not how much money you have. It's what you do with it. And the one thing this rich guy does in Luke 16 is he rolls out of his palatial gate in his palatial home every day with his poor man begging for the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. And he basically ignores him. And it's a cause and effect parable. It's not meant to tell you what hell's about, although there are some metaphors that would cross over, I know. But the whole point of the parable is this. There's a cause and effect, and the cause is this. If you truly knew God, Pharisees, you'd use your money differently than you do now. Wow. It's a cause and effect. If you really know God, it changes the way you see your stuff. Bottom line, no ifs, ands, or buts. If God were really in you, you'd change your attitude. So the rich man pursues self-aggrandizement over and above self-sacrifice because he does not truly know God. Because when God is in you, you love what he loves, you care about what he cares about, and you get involved in what his heart loves most. Because I've said it before, and I'll say it again, he changes not only what you do, but what you want to do. All right, here's the second story, Luke 19, Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. As a matter of fact, he's the chief tax collector. And in verse one of Luke 19, three chapters over from where we just were, so Jesus is still talking about our stuff. He starts at Luke 12 and doesn't finish till the end of Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho, was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, I don't know how many of you know the name Ray Stedman, but he was a famous pastor up around uh, the Bay Area at a church called Peninsula Bible Church, a great man of God. And he used to tell the story, so give credit where credit is due, about a guy who had a guilty conscience after he had filed his tax return. So he wrote a letter to the IRS, and it's a short letter, here's what he said. I have not been able to sleep because last year, when I filled out my tax return, I misrepresented my income. Enclosed is $500. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. (laughs) So Zacchaeus, a tax collector, we all kind of know what that's about, who lives in the high rent district. A couple other things you need to know, he's a traitor to his people. The worst two sins that were often coupled together in the land of Palestine, first century, were prostitutes and tax collectors. Those were seen to be the worst occupations uh, because tax collectors were seen as collaborators with Rome. Rome was trying to impoverish the land of Israel. And the only way they would do that is take all the money from Israel by taxation and give it to Rome. And so Jewish men would come in and bid on contracts. They would say, well, you know what? And they, they, would, they would betray their own people because they knew it was lucrative. So Zacchaeus would come in and say, I think I can get $10,000 a month from Jericho. And if he didn't get outbid by another Jewish fellow, the Romans would give him the contract, knowing that if he collected 20, he could keep the 10. Now, Rome knew it was happening, but they didn't care as long as they got their money, and the Jewish people knew it was happening. And they hated tax collectors, which explains verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree. Now, I thought about this. Zacchaeus is a short man. You know the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, wee little man was he. And so I'm 6'4", and if a wee little man fights through a crowd and wants to get in front of me, I don't mind because he's not going to obstruct my line of sight at all. But they wouldn't even let him to the front because they hated him, and he climbs a sycamore tree to be able to see who Jesus is. Now, a couple things. Number one, in those days, it wasn't all about human rights. It was about honor and dignity. And a grown man would never, under any circumstances, climb a tree. 
Understand that. But something else is going on here, Zacchaeus, and the something else is desperation. Because money has become his idol and it's not working for him. Now, remember when we did the marriage seminar and I told you there are some young ladies or some young men that say, God, if I could just have a husband, if I could just have a wife, if I could just marry this guy, if I could just marry this girl, then I know I will be complete and I will have everything I've always wanted and there will never be any more trouble in my life. (laughs) And we said, well, that's when you make another person an idol because only God can give that to you. Well, some people do that with money and that's what Zacchaeus was doing. If I could just make this much money, then I'll have everything I've ever wanted but it wasn't working. Remember what Rockefeller said when they said, how much is enough? Just one more dollar. Now, before I go on, let me just explain. There are still plenty of people in audiences like this, plenty of men and women who are driven by money. And so their security and peace is contingent on how much money's in the bank. You think about that. Think about that. Is your peace in life contingent on how much money you have in the bank? Which one causes you more stress if I say to you, there is no God or you don't have enough money in the bank? Some of you who are leaning toward money would say, there's no God. Wow, that's too bad, but I'm good. (laughs) You got it? If you're leaning toward money. Now think about what happens for Zacchaeus here. He's wealthy. He's got all the money, but he's miserable. He still contemplates death. He knows that no matter how much money he has, he cannot prevent death. The the significance that he thought his money was going to give him and how he'd feel important is not working. This hole and void in his life Still there, can't explain it. Then he hears about Jesus coming and word on the street about Jesus is that Jesus loves all people, is kind to strangers, loves the unlovable and eats with prostitutes and tax collectors. Now imagine the drama. I love, don't you love this about Jesus? Jesus coming through town and all the people around him are respectable religious people who all feel superior to prostitutes and tax collectors. And Jesus, instead of talking to them, singles out the most notorious sinner in the crowd. And he talks to Zacchaeus. That's it for now. I hope you can join us next time on Today with Jeff Vines as we continue My Stuff is My Stuff. There's a part of every pastor that wants to manipulate, coerce, bring a tear to your eye so you'll give more. Not going to work. Never does. Guilt never works. Only one thing that can change your attitude toward your stuff. You know what that is? Genuine, authentic conversion. When the Holy Spirit of God gets in you, He'll do all the convicting work the Spirit ever does. Much better than I could do. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.